Welcome back to Portfolio Rescue, where during bull markets, we get questions about leverage ETFs. And during bear markets, we get questions about bonds and Roth IRAs. So we'll see if that transition happens. We're, we're still on the latter half in terms of questions, but uh, we'll see if that changes that because things have been going a little better lately. Yeah, I'm feeling good. Do we, how are we feeling better? Good? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Feeling, feeling good. Uh, you know, it's funny because everyone says, why should the stock market change just because the calendar flipped to a new year? And look what happened. It worked. That's all we needed to do. Yeah. Change the calendar. Is this still the Santa Claus rally? I don't I think this is just the newest resolution rally. So we're going into February. Things are going well. Just remember this feeling the next time stocks are down like 10% in a month. Right. Yeah, it could happen. All right, let's do some questions. Okay. Up first day, we have a question from Larry. Without getting into the politics of throwing the US government into default, the threat is very real. How about a discussion on how retirees should position themselves to protect their portfolio? Uh, us old guys don't have years to recover from a political sabotage of the markets and the economy. You know, old folks read and listen to your stuff too, exclamation point. Yes, fair point, Larry. I think our, our YouTube audience skews, definitely skews younger. I think podcasts, if we're doing like a overgeneralization here, are probably more Gen X. And then my blog actually does have a decent percentage of baby boomers. And how do I know this? Because a lot of them ask me, how do I print it out? On, on regular paper to read it. That, so that has to be boomers, right? I would think. Obviously, there's, there's some overlap. Okay, so obviously, the market doesn't seem to care about the debt ceiling now. As of this recording, I got the S&P up almost 9% year-to-date. NASDAQ 100 up almost 17% in 2023. Bonds are also rallying. So the stock market doesn't care about like the debt ceiling debate yet. I think part of the reason the markets don't really seem to care is because like we've been through this before. It's basically like political theater. I think a lot of it, the debt ceiling stuff, is just it makes politicians feel important. They use it as leverage. It's a negotiating ploy. Could we see some crazy politician get into office and take this too far and possibly like lead to a default? It wouldn't surprise me with the people that we have as our politicians these days. But I think a default caused by a politician, that's not like some crazy Be careful there. You know, crisis. We have people on Capitol Hill that watch the show. So. I know. I'm just saying, could someone take it too far in the future? Yes, I think. But that seems like a more of a short-term problem than a long-term one to me. So, even if, you, but even if you know how badly a politician is going to screw this up someday, I don't know that you could position your portfolio for it. So back in the summer of 2011, Standard and Poor's downgraded the U.S. credit rating. Right. This is from. It felt like a big deal at the time. This is from a BBC story at the time. I'm going to read this. One of the world's leading credit agencies, Standard and Poor's, has downgraded the United States top-notch AAA credit rating for the first time ever. S&P cut the long-term U.S. rating by one notch to AA+, with a negative outlook citing concerns about budget deficits. Correspondents say the downgrade could erode investors' confidence in the world's largest economy. It's already struggling with debts. Unemployment of 9.1% and fears of a possible double-dip recession. The downgrade is a major embarrassment for the administration of President Barack Obama and could raise the cost of U.S. government borrowing. This, in turn, could trickle down to higher interest rates for local governments and individuals. That sounded pretty scary at the time. I think a lot of people were worried about that, right? John, let's do a chart on a bond returns over the ensuing year. Bonds went nuts after this happened. Long-term treasuries are up almost 30%. The ag was up over 6%. 10-year treasuries are up over 10%. Now, why did this happen? Interest rates actually fell. And they not only fell like a little bit, they fell a lot, and they fell immediately. So this is the 10-year... You can see, look, at it dropped almost immediately from the time they downgraded the, the credit rating. It was like 2.6%. It went down to one4 And, okay, how about the stock market? Things did get weird in the stock market in the short term. So the Monday after the downgrade, the I, and I remember this period. It was crazy. The stock market fell 6% on a day, right? Johnny can do a chart off for a sec here. I'll get back to this one. Uh, the day after that, it was up more than 5%. The day after that, it was down more than 4%. And the day after that, it was up 5%. This is back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back days of up six, 
or down six, up five, down four, up five. It was a crazy Michael Scott would call snip, snap, snip, snap. And to be fair, at the time we were going through the European debt crisis, people were worried about a double dip recession. We were already in the midst of a correction and the the stock market actually bottomed in October. So John put this up. This is including that down 6% day to start things. The S&P was up almost 20% a year later. So the stock market did not really care. Could we see some short-term volatility if we have like a prolonged debt ceiling discussion and debate and close to a default? Sure, markets could get spooked. But I think that has just more to say with like the current trends and rates and economic growth and the stock market and what's happening than the political theory in D.C. Maybe, maybe people would use that as an excuse. We have a huge rally here, and then the politicians decide they want to do something crazy, and that causes some stock market volatility, and we see some short-term volatility. Sure. Does that mean you should change your portfolio because of it? No, like short-term volatility in the markets is always going to be a thing. That's always a risk, whether it's political, economic, or otherwise, right? So I don't think you change your portfolio because of it. I think you you always have your portfolio gauged to figure out that short-term risk. The other thing to mention here, every time this happens, people complain about how much debt we have in this country, right? So John, do a chart on, this is the U.S. debt clock. Now, this looks like a website from like 1994. It's still going. You can you can calculate all this stuff on this debt. You can see that I highlighted here that U.S. national debt is more than $31 trillion, right? That sounds like a lot of money. Now, I'm not even going to try to figure out how much the United States is worth in terms of assets, like beyond the tax revenue we bring in. I think I've seen estimates that, like, if you include all the, the land we own, like federal land and state land, I think the U.S. government owns like 25 to 30% of all land in this country. So if you really wanted to offset the, the assets with, the, you know, the liabilities with the assets, the United States has a lot of, of assets. But even beyond that, let's look at the interest we pay as a percentage of GDP. So John, chart on here. This is interest expense as a percentage of gross domestic product. Look at back in the 1980s and 90s, way higher than it is today. It's going up because rates are going up and debt has gone up, but we're still able to service this debt, even with higher rates. And obviously the debt was much lower back then, but rates were higher and GDP was obviously much lower. John, throw up the next chart on GDP. This is the latest GDP reading as of fourth quarter 2022. $26 trillion in growing. And it's not like... The GDP is a is a one is an accumulated amount like like the debt is, right? GDP is something that we produce year in and year out. So this year it's probably going to be bigger than twenty six trillion if it looks like the economy is on strong footing, which it is. So I know that the debt number is scary, but I just think that people have been worrying about government spending forever. This John the, the this is a cover story from nineteen seventy two in time. Is the U.S. going broke? I think as long as the economy continues to grow, that's a federal good cover. Debt is gonna, it really is. But, and people were scared. This is 1972. I think as long as the economy continues to grow and federal debt is going to grow as well, as long as the pie gets bigger. And unfortunately, unless the politicians get rid of the debt ceiling thing, it's always going to be an argument every few years when we get to this. So I think you have to get used to it. But I also think that people probably worry too much about government debt and, and the implications that it could have. I, I think this is something that we're going to look back at another 10, 20, 30 years, and it's going to be I don't know, $70 trillion. People are going to go, $70 trillion is too high. I think people just have to get used to it. If, if debt is growing, it probably means that the economy is growing as well. And that, that's a good thing. Also, can't we just make a giant platinum coin or something, right? Sure, Isn't pay it off. The other, here's the other thing, though. Because I've seen people say, we should get rid of all debt. Just abolish United States debt, get rid of it, pay it all off. That debt is an asset to someone else, right? Retirees, pension plans, who own bonds, who own treasuries, those liabilities that the United States is creating is an asset for someone else. Those T-bills you're, you're earning 4 or 5% on right now, which we're going to talk about in some, a few questions later here, that, that's an asset from U.S. government borrowing. 
So you take that away, then we don't have any bonds for people. I mean, you have to go further than risk curve for bonds, different types of bonds, but th- those are assets too. Right. Let's do another one. Okay. Up next, we have a question, I think, from Twitter. Uh, yeah, someone on Twitter posted this. Okay. Uh, what's it going to take to right-size the Treasury yield curve from its current inverted state? Isn't that what we're all waiting for when 10-year and 30-year Treasuries have higher rates than 2- and 5-year? Also, why do we need or want that? I presume it's because it signals that the markets think long-term returns will be higher than short-term returns, but I'm not entirely clear on it. See, so staying on the theme that bond questions are coming in hot and heavy lately still. Right. We'll see if that this changes. This is a question I've seen other people have before, too. Yeah. So, John, give me the chart of the change in yield curve. This is over the past 13 months. So the blue curve on the bottom, that's as of 12-31-2021, so 13 months later, the gray curve happens. You can see the bottom curve, it's upward sloping. So, lower, shorter-term yields, one, two, three, six-month T-bills, are much lower than longer-term yields, 10-year, 20-year, 30-year. Now look at the, the line above it, the gray line. That's as of, uh, as of February 1st. Shorter-term yields, one month, two months, three months, six months, are much higher than three, five, seven, 10, 20, 30 year treasury bonds, right? And you can see that upward sloping curve, that, that's the normal, that's what we want. And that makes sense because why? You should earn higher rates of return when you extend your time horizon and fixed income because you're taking on more interest rate risk, more inflation risk, more economic risk. More things can happen the longer your time horizon goes and not always in a good way. So investors typically require higher yields for going further on that risk curve. And now that it's inverted, that, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because you're, you're being paid higher yield to take less risk. And the people further on the risk curve are being paid less. So typically, you use the yield curve as a way to gauge the health of the economy, right? When longer-term yields are higher than shorter-term yields, that typically shows signs of healthy economic progress, right? People think things are going to get better in the future, higher growth potentially, uh, higher inflation, things are going to be better. An inverted yield curve is, you know, or narrower yields signal that things could get worse. And, and if you look back at it, it's got like an eight out of eight in terms of predicting non-coming recession. Yield curve inverts in the next, call it six to 18 months, we get a recession. Today, I think things are a little trickier because of the role the Fed is playing here in the yield curve. Uh, so Cam Harvey is the guy who, the Duke professor who came up with this signal, actually thinks it might not work this time. So John, he wrote a research piece, throw this up here real quick. He gives some reasons why he thinks his own signal, the, the inverted yield curve might not work. And he talks about the strength of the labor market, the fact that the people being laid off, especially in the tech sector, are finding jobs much easier because they're more highly skilled. Consumers are just in a much better position. The financial sector is, is much healthier, and they've, they've taken steps because of the regulations to be fine. So, um, and obviously, the, the Fed. The Fed is the one that is increasing short-term rates. And so I guess that, that, that explains what's going on in the yield curve. But what's going to happen to bring it back in line? Well, I think the easy answer just is the Fed. Long-term yields don't seem to believe that inflation is going to be a long-term problem. And so they haven't moved up much at all, right? So we have, we have 30-year yields that are basically the lowest on the whole yield curve. So I think a recession would probably help us get back there, unfortunately. Uh, maybe inflation falling a little bit would help too, but it's basically the, the Fed lowering short-term rates. That's what's going to have to happen. to bring, unless, unless inflation continues to start going back up again and long-term rates decide to go up, it, it is kind of crazy, though, if you think that we had 9% inflation and, and long-term bond yields didn't go much above 4%. So... If, if that's not going to do it, I don't know what is. So it's basically the Fed. The Fed is going to have to lower short-term rates. That's going to take us out of an inverted yield curve. It all comes down to the Fed. Everything does, right? Yeah. Seems like. And, and this is kind of a, this is a nice segue into the next one, which I think is, is kind of related here. All right. So up next, we have a question from Matt. Everyone is talking about T-bills paying around 4%. 
But why would you lock up money in T-bills for 2, 10, or 20 years when you have these high-yield savings accounts paying out basically the same while keeping your funds fully liquid? I've researched it and have yet to uncover some catch. They're FDIC-insured, and the biggest downside i found is that they're typically online banks and don't have physical branches or their own ATMs, so you have to sync up a regular bank account to transfer money, which takes about five minutes. Am I missing something? Why would you purchase T-bills when you can get the same returns with one of these high-yield savings accounts? This is a good question. We've been getting actually a lot of questions like this. Some people say it's crazy to keep your money in a savings account when T-bill yields are actually higher. Some people say it's crazy to go through the process of buying T-bills when savings accounts are easier. That's what this one is saying. Before we get into that, I need to give some nerdy bond definitions to this person here. All right, so Matt, just so you know, uh, you can't call everything a T-bill. T-bills have a maturity of one month to one year, right? Treasury notes or treasury bonds have a maturity of two years to 30 years. So the way that it works is the biggest difference is if you buy a T-bill, you, you say you want to get $1,000, you, you put $950 in on day one, and let's say you buy a 12-month T-bill, a year later, you're going to get $1,000 at par. So you don't actually get those coupon payments like you do from a bond or a treasury note. So that's the difference. Just wanted to make sure our guy knows what he's talking about here. If he's going to school someone, he knows his T-bills versus T-bonds, right? Good advice. So that's how that works. Uh, the good news is because of the Fed's actions, these short-term rates are about as attractive as they've been on a relative basis in, in decades, I guess. So John, do a chart on this is three-month T-bill yields versus 30-year treasury bills, treasury yields, right? So you can see the changes over time. Obviously, they've been falling. This is since 1981. And so I, I calculated the difference. So going back to 1980, early 1980s, the average difference between long-term yields, these 30-year treasuries, and short-term yields, which is three-month T-bills, the average yield has been a little more than 2% higher for long-term rates, right? Long-term rates have averaged 2% more than ultra-short-term rates. Right now, T-bills yield 1% or more than 30-year treasuries, which is basically the highest I could find in that time frame. So in over 40 years, this is the highest spread between ultra-short yields and ultra-long yields. So that's pretty good. So anyone parking their cash in money markets, CDs, savings accounts, and I'm talking online savings accounts here, not necessarily bank savings accounts and T-bills, are being given a gift from the Fed right now. So you don't just have to, you don't have to take a lot of risk on your cash right now. So which option is better? An online savings account, T-bills, maybe money market or CD? I think they all have pros and cons, and it, it probably doesn't really matter. T-bills yields currently are higher than sa- online savings accounts. So we're talking 45 to 4.6% for T-bills right now, depending on what month and what duration we're talking. And I've found 33 to 3.5% for online savings accounts. So that, that's a pretty decent, you can get over 100 basis points more in T-bills. Then you can buy those T-bills directly from uh, Treasury Direct, from the not, government, not or to you can brag, buy but my, my high-yield savings account is paying 4.03% right now. 4.03. Okay. Mm-hmm. That 0.3 is important. Okay. So you're running four. You've told us it, it's some. Are you sure this isn't a Ponzi scheme? No. Four, I mean, four, four who percent. knows? But yeah, they're I'm not. Kidding. So four far. percent. No, four percent is because T bills were are where they are. That makes sense, right? And those as the Fed continues to raise rates, these rates should continue to go because the Fed just raised another 25 basis points yesterday. So, um, online savings accounts are probably easier to deal with in terms of moving cash in and out of your account. That that's. For me, that the ease of access, I think, is is the biggest thing for me. Both of these yields can and will change. So if the Fed keeps raising rates, they're going to go up. So again, if the Fed does another 25 basis points at the next meeting, these yields are going to continue to go up. And even if even if bond yields on the higher longer end don't move, these are going to have to follow the the Fed funds rate, even if they don't follow it one for one. So you could lock in higher rates with CD yields because these yields are going to fall if the Fed decides to does decide to cut rates and take us out of the inverted yield curve, like these rates are going to fall too and probably in a hurry. They're going to they're go down a lot faster than they went up. 
That's for sure. So when the Fed does decide to cut rates, whenever that is, it's going to happen. But as long as you don't have your money sitting in a brick-and-mortar bank earning 20 basis points right now, I don't think it really matters all that much. If you right. have T-bills or online, like, it's probably not that much of a difference. Yeah, years ago, so my PNC about, account, a couple years ago, was like 0.01% was like what right. the savings was getting. So especially if you're buying an ETF that is, like there's a T-bill ETF, you're not locking your money up in that. Like this, this person, you're, you're not necessarily right. locking it up unless you're, you know, even if you buy the actual bonds, you can still sell them. Uh, now, to be clear on that, rates. that's something I don't quite understand. Is the yield on that ETF going to be the same as what the actual T-bills would be yielding? Or will there be yeah, a it's spread? Gonna be, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be pretty close. Okay. I mean, it, it, depending on the day you buy the actual T-bill, it might be a little more or less. But the the T-bill yields right now and those ETFs are, are pretty close. Okay. So I, I would just say enjoy this while it lasts because the situation where short-term rates are way higher than long-term rates is just it, it simply can't last. I mean, the Fed can hold on for a while, but that's just, that's not normal. So I'd say just enjoy it while it lasts. Good advice. All right. So another one. Okay. Up next, we have a bit of a bummer, um, but it's a, a good question. I think a lot of people can relate to, and it's from a longtime listener and someone, I'm not going to name them for, you know, because of the topic, but, um, but yeah, this question is, uh, my mother recently told me a story about a family friend. Let's call her Anna. Anna and her husband were well off, fully paid off house and about to enjoy their golden years. No kids and a sizable nest egg. Anna's husband, probably due to some kind of dementia, began to compulsively gamble. Anna knew next to nothing about the family finances, as her husband had done a good job managing the books for their entire marriage. He gambled everything, from their retirement funds to jewelry to the title of their car. Long story short, they lost everything and he disappeared. She ended up dying alone in a cheap nursing home paid for by Medicaid. My parents are getting up there in age, and I wonder what kind of safeguards I could help them put in place in case something happened to them mentally. For instance, how do I make sure they won't get cleaned out by a Nigerian uh, prince email scam? I mean, this is this is something that you don't really think about. Like longevity is a huge risk in retirement, but people don't think about the fact that you could have huge cognitive decline, and part of that could be because some sort of uh, brain problem. You have dementia, Alzheimer's, or something, and that's something you have to think about. So, to me, this is a, this is a very much a financial planning question more than anything. And so, let's bring in a financial planner. Kevin Young has been on the show before. Hey, hey Kevin, Kevin, how's it going? Hey guys, thanks for having so me. So my sister-in-law was recently telling me a story about someone in her family who skimped and saved, didn't take any risks their entire career, worked for 40 years at the same company, saved six figures, was ready for retirement, and the first week they retired, handed their money over to someone who turned out to be a scam artist and took their life savings. And, yeah. and unfortunately, the people with the biggest targets on their backs for some time of scam is people with the most money, right? And the people with the most money tend to be older people. And so these, these are risks that you don't really think about in terms of people worry about interest rates and all, all the other stuff, people, debt defaults and recessions and all this other stuff. But this is, this, is a, this is a true problem for a lot of people. So, you know, as your faculties decline with age, it's much easier to get taken advantage of. So, Kevin, what are some ways to, if you're looking at your parents and saying, listen, I just want to make sure that we keep them safe and their money safe. How do we, how do, we do that? What are some safeguards we can put in place? Yeah, so, and, you know, this is, this is a... It's a really tough situation to uh, to hear about. Um, it's and hopefully avoidable for for a lot of people. And there's some there are some aspects to this. Like that's obviously a very extreme case, right? Um, but even even in a less extreme case where the money just isn't being managed properly, maybe the per you know okay, well you know my husband or my wife is always taking care of this, and as time goes on, 
Um, you think everything's still being done properly, but oops, you know, you're the person in charge of it hasn't switched you out of, you know, being hundred percent equities in 20 years. And, and maybe that worked out really well, uh, into the, but it's not gonna work out so well into the teeth of a, you know, a 2022 if you're retired. Right. So as little as the portfolio just being managed properly out to this, obviously very extreme case of the money being all gone. Um, there are a couple things you can do sort of at increasing levels of uh, sort of uh, security. So the first thing they could do um, for your parents uh, is if they've got a brokerage account, uh, an industry-wide thing now is something called a trusted contact. And that's somebody that uh, could be yourself, it could be a family member, somebody you trust, that is just privy to uh, the very basics of the account. So the person would have no control over the account, they couldn't call up and make any changes. But for me as an advisor, if I have a client that calls me up and asks me to do something kind of out of character, let's say they're living on you know, $10,000 a month and they call me up and say, I need $100,000 right now, wire it right away. Um, if that person's son is on the account as a trusted contact, I might call the son and just say, hey, you know, got this request from your mom and just seemed a little out of character. Is everything okay? They can't stop the withdrawal, um, but that might be somebody who can just sort of put out a speed bump and, you know, call and make sure everything's okay. And that way, you know, as the advisor and, and certainly as, you know, a loved one, you're, you're aware of what's going on. Well, that that's, to me sounds like another form of diversification. So we talk about the, the perils of concentration in portfolio investing. Mm -hmm. it, we've, we've had a lot of people come to us and say, I've been managing the finances my whole career. I want an advisor because I want the rest of the family to understand that something's going to be okay if I get hit by a bus or I keel over or I get dementia or whatever it is. So I think that to your point, it's kind of, diversifying the, the people involved in the account and maybe just opening up the lines of communication to other people. Yeah, exactly. We t I talk a lot about, um, and I, I stole this line from, from one of our other advisors, Paul, um, but we talk a lot about eliminating a single point of failure. And in some cases that might be, you know, working with a, um, you know, working with somebody that is all by themselves in an office, right? I, I've, I've seen it before where somebody has an accountant and the accountant dies suddenly and, he never had an assistant. Nobody has any clue where his files are. It's a huge mess. Similar to, hey, my dad always managed the account and now he's gone and nobody knows the passwords. Nobody knows where the money is, et cetera. Um, so eliminating that single point of failure is really important. Um, the next layer of, of protection you could do is uh, if you know your parents are good with it, either they can have um, power of attorney on each other's accounts um, or they could name you know, a sibling, a, a, a you know, somebody else, again, somebody who uh, is responsible. The power of attorney- Not, to, not to brag, I'm the power of the attorney for my parents and my in-laws as well, because I'm the finance guy. There you go. Nice. And, and probably Michael's accounts too. <laughs> um, Someday. So, so, uh, so the POA is a step above that trusted contact. That person actually can uh, make changes to an investment portfolio. They can stop a withdrawal. They can take money out you know, in and out, et cetera. So that person you definitely want to make sure is somebody that uh, is of sound mind and, and, uh, and is, you know, accountable. Um, the next level of that is sort of the same thing, but it would just be a trust, right? If you don't have somebody in the family or you don't want to take on that burden yourself or put that on, you know, your mom or your dad or vice versa, um, you can hire a corporate trustee. Um, you could either hire a corporate trustee or, or again, have somebody that you trust do it. And basically, you just put the assets in a revocable trust. And this is, I'm making this way simpler and sound easier than it actually is and probably less expensive. Um, but 
having that trustee there to make those decisions and make sure that things are being done properly uh, is is a good way to go. And That's then lastly, just a legal document drafted up by by an attorney. Yep, exactly, exactly. Yep, um, and and you would need a you would need an attorney to do a POA as well. So um, so an attorney would probably be a, a very good person to talk to about this kind of stuff and figuring out ways to protect assets uh, from a variety of you know potential issues. Uh, and then the last thing being, and I'm I'm kind of talking my book here, but a fiduciary advisor. Um, this again serves two purposes. One is you're removing that single point of failure. Um, just from an asset allocation perspective, right? To say nothing of the extremes of the money was misused, but I know in you know in our case, uh, if something like this starts to happen and and the advisor uh, sees odd behavior or sees things that don't look quite right, um, you know we have safeguards in place uh, as a firm, as do you know good fiduciary advisors across the country. They will go to their compliance officer and say, "Hey." something's up. What are the steps we need to do to make sure that this is all okay? Um, that all goes back to making sure, again, like having a good trusted contact, having people in place to help you out with these things. I do think the first step could be, I agree with you on all those, like outsourcing is the big one, obviously, but yeah. just having a conversation. I think money is such a taboo subject. Most people probably don't have those conversations with their kids or vice versa with their parents. That just mm -hmm. taking that first step and having the, having the conversation saying, I want to be involved, I want to help, just in case something does happen to one of you or both of you. Uh, I think simplicity is the other thing that if you just reduce the number of accounts that you have, you know, don't have accounts all over the place, maybe reduce yeah. the number of holdings. Like if you have fewer funds in your in your portfolio, I think the the, the simpler, the better in terms of the, the plan and the process. I think all that stuff can help, too. So it's easier if someone else does have to take over. But, yeah, this I mean, it's scary to think about this stuff. But uh, people my parents age, they, they've got two or three different friends from college that they've known their whole lives who are now in nursing homes because of some sort of Alzheimer's or dementia. It's, it, this is the kind of thing that you'd never want to see happen to someone you know or love, but it's a real possibility. Yeah. And a lot of people, you're right. Like a lot of people, I feel like, um, you know, my parents' generation, um, and I'm, I'm generalizing here. So, so apologies if I offend anybody, but you know, it's not a generation that really talked about money a lot. Um, right. and so oftentimes bringing that third party in, whether it be a trustee uh, or a financial advisor can just help to make those conversations uh, a little less emotional. Yes, right. Yeah, if you have an outside third party that can kind of look at it objectively, I, I agree. Because if you keep it in the family, it, it, it can make things tough. Also, yeah. it seems sure like whatever emotion, whatever emotional issues or or cost of setting something like this up, I'm sure you know this person in the example would have gladly uh, spent that either emotional or actual capital um, to ensure that this didn't happen. And it seems like in a lot of cases, people wait until it's, you know, almost too late, right? Where it's it's a really awkward or difficult conversation to have. Someone's already having cognitive decline. And so they're, it's kind of like trying to get someone to give up their, their keys to their car, right? When they're no longer fit to, to drive. And, and so, yeah, it seems like this works so much easier if someone has the forethought to go ahead years in advance and say like, okay, just in the event something were to happen, I want to go ahead and make sure that this is taken care of. Because um, otherwise it becomes kind of a, a messy situation, it seems like, or has the yeah. potential to become one. Right. I've already said it. If I if I decline cognitively, Michael cannot day trade anything <laughs> in my portfolio. It's all target date funds. That's it. Roger in the chat said that he wanted to make you his uh, his POA. Um, all right. Then, so. Bring it, Roger. All right. Let's do one more question. <laughs> all right. Last but not least, we have a question from Alex. Uh, is the HSA underrated and under-discussed as a retirement vehicle? 
the uh, 2023 Family Max is $7,750. If you use HSA funds for non-healthcare expenses in retirement, those funds are treated like a 401k. No penalty, but you pay income tax. In 2023, a maxed out uh, 401k and HSA is over $30,000, a significant sum for tax-deferred retirement investments. The HSA allows you to supplement your 401k contributions by another 34%. Obviously, HSA funds used for health-related expenses come out as tax-free as well, which is a huge bonus. But I've never heard anyone discuss the HSA as a second 401k, given its tax treatment in retirement. Would love to hear your thoughts. This is what they call a leading question. We've right. already got yeah, yeah. the opinion. But I have to be honest. I don't utilize an HSA, and for the simple reason that it feels like I have too many counts already. But I know that there are people who ride or die for these things. So Kevin, My wife has one, so I'm an expert. Okay, yeah, I'm just kidding. I, I don't understand. Ben, you have you have a bunch of kids. I have a bunch of kids. The HSA is um, forget for a retirement vehicle. They're great for young families too, um, because as we know, even if you've got great health insurance, uh, that deductible's got to get hit. And if you've got money set aside that comes out of the paycheck every couple of weeks, it's it's a really nice thing to have uh, as as a you know as a father of three little kids uh, who who visit doctors' offices. Um, you know, as a, as a sport, apparently. Um, but to, you know, to the question around using HSA as a retirement vehicle, um, I've got a, I've got a graphic I wanted to throw up, uh, John or Duncan. Perfect. Thank you. Um, you know, one thing to think about is just that people have it in their minds that retirement is, you know, oh, healthcare, it'll just, you know, the government's going to take care of me. Uh, it's Medicare, uh, no problems. I don't really have to think about it. Um, out of pocket, medical expenses in retirement are, are a real thing. They're not insignificant. Yes, you get your part A uh, theoretically free. Again, it depends on where you are with tax brackets. Um, but you that basically covers if you're in a car wreck and need to go to the hospital. It doesn't cover much else, right? So then you've got your part B premium, then you've got your Medigap, then you've got your prescription drugs. All that can add up to $13,000, $15,000 a year uh, for a married couple. So all of a sudden, you start to think, well, fifteen grand a year, and you know, even before this, you know, recent bout with inflation that we've all been living with, right? If you looked back, you know, pre last year, the things that were inflating the highest, healthcare was one of them, right? Healthcare and education um, and childcare, uh, which great, um, but but so for a retiree, having a bucket of money that you can sort of say, hey, this this bucket of money is going to be specifically for my healthcare, I think mentally and emotionally, that makes a lot of sense and gives people some comfort knowing that, hey, if there are out-of-pocket costs, I'm not dipping into you know my real quote-unquote retirement funds. Obviously, um, it does seem like the one of the biggest selling points here is just flexibility, right? If you need to spend, spend it on healthcare, you can, and it's, it's tax-free dollars. If you need mm-hmm. to, if you want to carry it over and use it for that sort of extra retirement boost, you can too, and that's, a, that's not a bad option. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it is flexible. And obviously the, the triple tax-free aspect of it, right? Getting a deduction, uh, the money grows tax-free. And then when you pull it out for, uh, for healthcare needs, it's tax-free. So that's wonderful. And to, you know, to this person's point, if you don't use it for, um, you know, for healthcare issues, yeah, you could use it for retirement. Um, my only pushback on that is, um, would potentially just be around why you wouldn't, you know, fund other types of accounts, whether it be, um, a backdoor Roth. Uh, if you're already maxing your 401k, it probably means you make too much to uh, to do a regular Roth. So maybe a backdoor Roth, or maybe just putting in a regular taxable account that down the road you're going to pay long-term capital gains on instead of ordinary income. 
uh, which you would on the uh, on the HSA if not used for for healthcare. Now, even though I badmouth politicians earlier, if anyone wants to make me the financial retirement czar, I would just say let's just make these rules generalized to all retirement accounts. Put the HSA and the four hundred one k and the IRA together in the Roth, and just like put it all together and make them give them all the same rules. Give everyone the same contribution limit. Let's make it easy, right? And I'm and I'm getting roasted in the comments here for not having an HSA. I just want people to know here, I have a SEP IRA too, so I'm taking advantage of as many tax deferrals as I can. Uh, if I fill that bucket up, maybe I'll look at an HSA. Also, sometime. you have a Roth uh, for each of your kids, right? Because they help out with, with your work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Something like that. But yeah, they're, they're, holding, they're holding the boom above your head. <laughs> right, right. But I, I, can, I can definitely see the, the benefits of the HSA. It makes sense that, because yeah, I, I just had to get, my daughter had to get braces this year. Could, I, could you do dental out of this too? Uh, Does that count? Yeah, yeah. I actually, I, I'm, I got a, I, you might, maybe you can tell this side of my face is a little puffy because I just had a tooth extracted on Tuesday morning. Uh, and I, I'm sure that's going to go over the, uh, the yearly yeah, sh- limit on our, should have used some tax free so. dollars to pay for my daughter's, uh, yeah, braces. Yeah. I got, I got my HSA ready to go for that bill. And so the, the only catch, if there is a catch is that you just have to have a high deductible, um, insurance plan, right? Correct. Yep. Yep. Exactly. High deductible health plan. So you are an expert, Duncan. Well, yep, yeah, I, I, I wasn't why. kidding. My wife does have what one, doing so I know a little bit about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, high deductible healthcare plan. Um, I, I again, I think if you're, you know, if you're a uh, a young person starting a family, um, I can't recommend them enough because uh, having children, the actual act of having children, is extremely expensive. Uh, yes. Raising them is expensive. Doctors are expensive. You never know what's going to come down, uh, you know, come down on you. So it's a great thing early in life, and if you don't need it. And some of that money compounds for 35 years. Uh, you're in you're in really great shape. All right, great questions today. We appreciate everyone who always writes in. It is kind of nice. We get a total diversification of of questions. Like it's always something are, new that people are keeping us on our. They're toes, great right? questions. I, I I love these. After this week, yeah. I'm anticipating a bunch of TQQQ and uh, biotech <laughs> questions for next week. Yeah, but those are all coming from you, Duncan. So remember, hit that subscribe button. Itemshop.com for our compound needs. Uh, compounded friends tomorrow. Tune in, and we will see you next week. See you, everyone. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast.